welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFBRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, uh, and my guest today is Mark Yaliati, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, and the weaponization of everything. And Mark's next book uh, actually comes out next month. It's called Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much uh, for joining me today, Mark. It was a pleasure. Okay, great to have you on on the show again. Now, the last time uh, you were my guest was in August. Quite a lot has happened since then both on the battlefield uh, and, of course, in civilian areas of Ukraine that are far from the front lines, but have been pounded by Russian missiles, bombs, and shells with a sickening and terrible result. Uh, And also in terms of actions the Kremlin and Russia have taken, a lot has happened. Uh, Mostly, I guess, actions they've taken to uh, adjust to the situation on the battlefield. We'll get to that second part a little later, but my first question Uh, has to do with the fact that today uh, marks eight months since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched this large-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, two-thirds of a year. Uh, Now, I would say that until the morning of February 24th, uh, or at least until a particularly grim and bellicose address that Putin delivered, I think it was three days earlier, Many observers believe that Russia would not invade, or maybe it would be more accurate to say they couldn't quite believe that Russia would invade, despite the signals that increasingly pointed in that direction. That was certainly my feeling or view at the time. But my question, Mark, is how does the way the war has gone over these eight months differ from what you expected that terrible morning uh, when it became clear that Russia had, in fact, begun this unprovoked invasion. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, because absolutely, I think for for most of us, as it were, who are, you know, in, in the analytic community outside of those with access to intelligence materials, there was, as you say, a certain disbelief. And, and, I'll, and I'll hold my hands up. I mean, until about a week before, and certainly that uh, particularly bizarre and horrific uh, televised Security Council meeting, I had thought the odds were no more than 30 to 40 percent that Russia would actually invade because precisely it didn't seem to make sense. Of course, what makes sense to us isn't necessarily what makes sense to Putin in, in his in his bubble. Of course, the other interesting paradox at that time was the very people on the whole who were the most bullish about the fact that Putin would invade also tended to be the most bullish in saying that essentially it would all be over in a couple of weeks. That although they will be mopping up pacification operations and so forth, that in those two weeks that the Russian military would spear its way through Ukraine. So, you know, in, in this respect, it's, it's a suitable uh, example of the, some of the perils of, of prediction. Broadly speaking, I mean, I think... The things I would actually sort of highlight as being the, the sort of the eight-month surprises, and you know, look, obviously one has to to address the whole question of the 
extraordinary determination of the Ukrainians to defend their own homeland. Though in some ways that shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, you know, even if one looks back to the Great Patriotic War, I mean, you know, there has been evidence enough of that. However, again, the striking thing is the degree to which still eight months on, I would argue that the Ukrainians' real secret weapon has been Vladimir Putin himself. His continued determination to try and, for example, micromanage the war. His desperate effort to take what is, after all, a really major military undertaking. Um, you know, although, fine, Ukraine is not as as big as the Russian Federation, but nonetheless, you know, it, it has a population of more than 40 million. Uh, it, this is not something like a military deployment of your air power into Syria or indeed a five day war in Georgia. You know, this was always going to be a major military endeavor. And yet, from the very first, Putin interfered, Putin overlaid his own half-baked pseudo-historical notions of what Ukraine was onto any kind of attempt at, at, at rational military planning. And, I mean, by all accounts, for example, although there now seems to be a withdrawal from Kherson, Essentially, by all accounts, the, the Russian military have been wanting to actually do that for weeks, if not months, and Putin had blocked them. Now, Kherson is frankly, I wouldn't quite say indefensible at the moment, but, but nonetheless, it, it is a, a dangerous place to try and hold on to, given that particularly Ukraine's now massive advantage in long-range fires. Um, so in this context, again, even now, Putin continues to overrule, overrule the views of his professional soldiers. And it's interesting because what this means is that, and I would hate to sort of make any kind of suggestion to say that Putin should be more like Stalin. But the point is, Stalin, again, at the very beginning of the Soviet involvement in World War II, you know, again, had overlaid his own political assumptions even though the military and his intelligence apparatus were sure the Germans were about to invade. However, Stalin very quickly learned that lesson, and he essentially confined himself to being the sort of broad political leader while his generals did the generaling. Now, Putin still hasn't learned that lesson, and obviously Kiev has to hope that Putin continues not to learn that lesson. We'll have to see with, in, in the new era of General Surovikin as overall field commander. So that, that's the first thing. Not that, uh, you know, it's not surprising that, that, that Putin stuck his oar in right from the beginning. It's, I think it is quite surprising how little he seems to be willing to learn. Second surprise, though, is, it is in some ways a corollary of this. You know, it's obviously, if we look at how badly the Russian military has done, and the clear impact of incompetence and corruption and a lack of preparedness. Now, on one level, this is no surprise. We've known for a long time that the Russian military, like the Soviet military, had these whole oh, um, array of different Achilles heels. But the interesting thing is this, look, the Russian military, the high command, they had a fairly decent idea too. Um, probably not of the, of the full degree, but essentially that there was a problem and that therefore they had constructed a whole series of bureaucratic responses which were intended precisely to try and minimize this, ranging from you know a, a careful structure for how you plan an operation and ensure it has the necessary logistical backup in advance 
through to in ways of essentially trying to get around the, the likely discipline problems. And again, because in part of Putin's own interference, but also I think it's clear to say a, a, a shocking lack of professionalism on part of the, sort of the more senior commanders at work, these mechanisms have not really been applied or invoked. So, you know, all of the all of these problems which could have been mitigated were not. And a military which, you know, are under Defence Minister Shoigu had reached a pitch where it could parade very prettily through Red Square and could put on limited shows of force with considerable apparent professionalism, such as Syria, such as 2014 Crimea, nonetheless essentially fell apart when actually put under a serious test. And then the, 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 I think the, the final big surprise is, frankly, us, Western discipline and unity. Um, and everyone was surprised by how quickly and effectively, for example, sanctions were applied and that they were much more extensive than, than anticipated. Indeed, almost in some cases, it actually became a problem because people were scrabbling around looking for more sanctions to apply. Now, yes, sanctions, of course, despite some people's ludicrous optimism that they would somehow bring the, the, the Russian people onto the streets and force Putin to change po policy. You know, that's not how sanctions work. You know, but nonetheless, I think we, we, we have to acknowledge the degree to which the sanctions regime and then also the continued supply of weapons and at least, and I would suggest even more importantly, financial assistance to keep the Ukrainian economy afloat you know, that has been a truly unexpected success story. All right, thanks very much. So I guess to try to recap, um, not necessarily in that order, but big surprises are Western unity, um, Putin's inability to um, adjust to his mistakes, which I guess, or his... his um, misunderstandings that the fact that as you as you mentioned i mean i'm paraphrasing now but uh from the beginning he had envisioned something he envisioned essentially a ukraine that did not exist and thus um was unable to effectively attack it uh, and still hasn't adjusted to that and then also um what you say should not have been surprising uh which is the the resolve of the ukrainian people um, so I'd like to, I mean, to, just just to touch a little bit on the on the second of those points, I guess, the idea that uh, so, so Putin apparently you mentioned Syria and um, the the five day war in Georgia, and Putin did apparently you know think that this would be somewhat similar to those like maybe a five-day war, uh, maybe a special operation in any case that was limited in scope, even though, as you, as you mentioned, Ukraine is a large country with more than 40 million people. Um, and so I guess it's, it seems like he still hasn't really, hasn't really adjusted to that. Uh, but for the second uh, question, um, I'd like to ask more about the developments that have occurred uh, in the last couple months, not not over the the whole eight months uh, since the invasion, basically I would say um, from the counteroffensive 
uh, in which Russian forces took back uh, parts of the of the Kharkiv region, a significant uh, swath of, of territory in the Kharkiv region, and also um, parts of the Donetsk region, city of Liman, uh, or Liman, rather. Uh, and, and then uh, the three things that Putin has done in just over a month. Um, one, at first, on September 21st, he announced uh, what he called a partial military mobilization, but clearly a large one. Um, uh, the defense minister Shoigu said the same day, I think that it would be, they would seek to call up 200, uh, 300,000 people. And Putin later said they had called, they had called up sometime, something around 230,000, I believe, um, uh, and that it wasn't done yet. Uh, then on September 30th, he signed documents uh, that Russia baseless, baselessly claims made Ukraine's Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson regions, parts of Russia. And then on October 19th, Putin issued decrees purporting to impose martial law in these four regions, only parts of which um, are under Russian control. And also, um, I believe it was a separate decree uh, introducing similar, if less drastic, drastic measures in a number of Russian regions. Um, I think you referred to this uh, as uh, martial law light uh, in some of the Russian regions. Mark, apologies, this is probably an overly broad question, but feel free to give it a narrower response. Um, at this point, what do you see as the main potential effects of these moves in terms of the war in Ukraine and also the situation in Russia? Well, broadly speaking, I think that they represent something of a tectonic shift in Putin's thinking. And look, any kind of attempt to suggest that one knows what, what Putin is thinking is, of course, a very sort of uh, heroically stupid one. Um, but, but nonetheless, I mean, I, I cannot help but feel that we're seeing the shift from him looking at ways of how he can win the war to him looking at ways in which he can ensure that he doesn't lose the war. And I think that is important, um, not least in terms of the sort of long-term prospects for any kind of peace in this ghastly conflict, which at the moment is, frankly, in, impossible to conceive of. I mean, they're, they're, the distance between where Ukraine is and where the Russians are, or rather where Kiev is and where, is, and where the Kremlin is, um, is just so great as to, as to be unbridgeable. But if there is going to be any kind of, of, of a deal, even if it's a retrospective deal after Ukraine has reconquered territories, then, in a way, it, it relies on Putin having got his head around the idea that he's lost. Anyway, that, that, that's a very broad point. But I think what we do think is, is if one thinks of the annexations and the mobilisation, which, to be honest, I think we ought to be considering as, as two faces of the same coin, they're very much intended, I think, as measures to hold the line. And I think that's, that's where the, the Russians are, are at the moment. This sense that, look, for the moment, of course, they're not going to be able to make any further advances. But what they have to do in their own mind is to essentially stall the Ukrainians, rob them of the momentum that they have acquired, and hold them at least for long enough until the rains come and conditions become much, much less propitious for any kind of major advances. I mean, there's sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding of the Ukrainian winter in the sense that, oh, well, 
everything will then just stop until spring. That's not really the case. I mean, if anything, it's in almost three phases. The initial rains that precisely churn up the sticky mud and close the skies and just generally make it hard to, to launch major operations. But then in high winter, quite likely that there will be the sort of temperatures, which means that actually the ground freezes. And once again, there is a renewed opportunity until it begins to thaw. And once again, things, things close down. So, but anyway, for the moment, I think, I think the Russians are hoping that they can hold the line. The annexations, they were the equivalent of Putin burning his own boats on the, uh, the, the beach after they've landed. In other words, to try and make this, this, this case that, look, there is no way that we are going to be backing away any further and essentially push us and we will retaliate more, more, more gratuitously. And that may just simply be um, a rhetorical political move to try and deter not so much Kiev, but I think the West. And I'll come on to that in a moment, the, the importance of his political struggle with the West. And mobilisation, likewise, is, is an attempt, a very belated attempt. I mean, for this to have had real effect, it should have been done in the spring. Um, but an attempt to address the, the key Russian weakness on the battlefield, which is just simply not enough soldiers. You know, a, a peacetime Russian military is facing a fully mobilised Ukraine. And that just simply is not working. And if one looks at, for example, the you know, great gains that the Ukrainians made from their Kharkiv offensive, I mean, to a large extent, it's precisely because they were rolling into territory, which the Russians had stripped of any decent troops and was being held just simply by you know, a relatively small number of, to put it generously, second rank units. So essentially, they, they need to have more warm bodies in the line, even if they're not going to be particularly good soldiers. They are at least there. And the, the striking thing is, I mean, if one looks at the figures that, that Putin did um, give when he made had his press conference after the Astana summit, in which he absolutely said that so far 222,000 of the projected 300,000 mobilized reservists had already been called to arms. But of those, a very small number, depending on again, his, his figures are slightly ambiguous, but, you know, but essentially, you know, we are, we are talking about fewer than 20,000 who are actually in the front line. Um, in, in, in combat units that are actually engaged in combat operations. Most of these are being held back. So some troops to the front line to help replenish badly um, degraded units that are there. And just generally to just you know, block out the front line a bit to you know, impose a few more dilemmas upon the Ukrainians who up to now have essentially had everything their own way. Meanwhile, most of these troops are going through... Um, Training, not very extensive training, it has to be said, re-equipment to try and establish some kind of units of whatever poor quality they may be. So new units that actually come spring could be used either for defensive or small scale offensive operations. Now, again, is this the kind of force that is going to turn the tide of battle? No, not really. But what it is, is the kind of force that can essentially prevent the Ukrainians from imposing a military defeat on the Russians on the battlefield. And again, this is where I think this is the second key point is time. Time is clearly absolutely central to Putin's strategy at the moment. And he believes, and he may well be wrong, I suspect he is, but nonetheless, he believes that time is on his side. It's always been his view that basically 
Russia's strategic advantage is that it has greater will than the West. And fine, so the Ukrainians may well not be at all willing to back away from the conflict. But over time, the West's unity and will, the West's preparedness to keep putting, sending billions of pounds, dollars and euros into this, this conflict will decline, you know, especially after a hard winter. Possibly he has some hopes for the American midterms, you know, political turmoil in other countries. Of course, I couldn't possibly mention the United Kingdom. Um, you know, for all these reasons, you know, I think he's hoping that, that actually after a certain point, the West will, will, will begin to falter. And the point is, if, if the West starts to question its continued support of Ukraine, and particularly if it stops funding Ukraine at anything like the same level, then it'll be that much harder for the Ukrainians to actually continue the war. Now, as I said, I, I don't know if this is actually at all uh, a war-winning strategy. I suspect it's not. I, I think ultimately the, you know, this is a war that the Ukrainians are going to win. But in some ways, it's all Putin has got. I mean, I think he has to believe that it can work because his options otherwise are all unpalatable. You know, a, a serious and massive es escalation is possible. But he also knows it will likewise dramatically escalate the West's campaign against him. Likewise, in theory, he could sort of try and back away from the war, claim victory with what he's got, make, you know, sue for peace, whatever. But in practice, of course, that's not something I think that he can possibly even envisage, not least because he fears, rightly or wrongly, that it would pose an existential political threat to him. So basically, this is all he's got, so he's going to go all in. Final point is in terms of the home front. Look, I think we have to acknowledge the degree to which actually Russia is, or the Russian system, is, is coping. Despite all the problems, one way or the other, it is coping. I mean, yes, the economy is increasingly dysfunctional, but you know, Russians have been used to having a pretty dysfunctional economy. Uh, ordinary Russians, a majority of them now, more than 60% of households have no savings. But still, people are scrimping and, 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 try and, and getting by and, and so forth. The government system is showing increasing signs of pressure, in particular, considering the degree to which it's, it's designed to be almost deliberately unstable, with constant struggles between individuals, factions and institutions, which allows Putin to play divide and rule. Well, that obviously depends on Putin actually being present to resolve disputes and generally sort of act as a, as a moderating influence. Well, at present, for whatever reason, whether he's just simply obsessed with the war, Putin isn't being present. So we're seeing increasing rivalries, not just on the big level of people like Kadyrov and Prigozhin criticizing Shoigu, but in, in some ways even more importantly on, on, on a slightly lower level. I mean, if you think of all these various mysterious deaths, there's no real suggestion that the, the Kremlin is behind them. It's more that these are examples of the way that murder is once again emerging as a business tactic. Um, so, so generally, I think you know we, we're seeing a system which is undoubtedly under strain, but coping. And my view is, you know, it, it will continue to do so for, for some time. But what it lacks now is, or increasingly rather, it lacks resilience. It lacks the kind of reserves, whether it's money or legitimacy or managerial capacity, to cope with unexpected black swan type events of the sort which happen inevitably. And this is where I think martial law in part fits in. I mean, yes, martial law has a, a role in terms of 
um, you know, trying to consolidate the Kremlin's grip on its occupied territories. It has a role, likewise, in trying to ensure greater security in regions that border onto Ukraine. Um, and you know, it's clear that the Russians have a concern of Ukrainian, call it diversionary or terrorist operations on on Russian soil. But it also is a way of trying to sort of mobilize mass support by making everyone feel that they're all part of it. But it is also, 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 um, it is also part of the kind of response to this lack of resilience, to try and ensure that there is a, an, you know, an infrastructure there for what we would really think of as you know, nationwide potential martial law or similar sort of mobilization and militarization of all aspects of society if things go really badly. So again, I, I think all of this reflects the fact that whatever the, the, the bombastic rhetoric we're still hearing from Putin and other figures within the Kremlin, in practice, they're digging in, digging in directly and literally in the occupied territories and digging in metaphorically in Russia as a whole. All right, that's uh, uh, excellent points. Uh, very interesting. I just... Um, I, I would have a lot of things to say, but I don't think I would be adding very much. I will just say, um, very interesting, you mentioned the kind of the lower level of the, the Kadyrov and Prigozhin um, uh, uh, attacks on Shoigu, obviously um, prominent, but you mentioned the lower level uh, disputes and, and rivalries uh, playing out with, with Putin kind of not present. I mean, I w and you said murder. I was thinking, you know, has Putin kind of brought back the 90s, the, the decade that, that he loves loves to hate and, and I would say exaggerate about. Um, so that's that's an interesting, interesting point you make. Um, but I, I guess uh, talking about what where that might lead would be the subject of a whole uh, different uh, or another um, podcast. So I'll leave it at that. But um, we uh, do have time to take some questions. So um, uh, if anyone has any questions, please uh, please uh, go ahead and use one of the methods to ask a question. See if we have any that have come in so far. Give it a few more moments. Again, you can um, you can hit the button in the Twitter space to request to speak, or you can send a, a direct message, DM, or uh, pose the question as a reply to the tweet that's pinned here. If you do have any questions. Uh, so if not, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask actually Mark a question that's that I've been sort of wondering about, and you you touched on this, Mark. Hi, uh, Martin. You can ask a question. Okay, go ahead. Martin, do you want to ask a question? Go ahead. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for this uh, space. Um, I wanted to um, just comment, uh, ask a question. 
the United States 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles, uh, were deployed uh, to uh, Romania. And I understand it's, uh, from what I, I read um, in one of the articles, it's uh, it's not a training mission. It's uh, basically um, preparedness for combat mission. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to uh, see what... Um, uh, Mark and uh, and yourself had to say about that, um, and uh, also um, doesn't it dawn? I suppose not. It's it's maybe a naive question, but I'll ask it anyway. Doesn't it dawn on um, any of the more enlightened Russians uh, that their uh, their leader is uh, being? Um, that the, the crimes being committed in Ukraine are being investigated by the International Criminal Court uh, and other uh, respected um, uh, bodies, uh, that they are basically committing war crimes and genocide in Ukraine. Um, I, surely there must be, uh, again, <laughs> I sound naive even to myself, but uh, there, there, there must be some sort of awareness amongst some of them, and, and the fact as well, sorry for blabbing on, but let me just finish this thought, um, that, you know, there's estimates range up to 60,000 uh, Russian uh, conscripts, troops who have been killed uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, so where where is the the outrage where is the protest movement are, are we not hearing about it what, could you comment on that thank you for this sure happy to i mean first of all as regards the 101st airborne i mean i think this is essentially um very substantial and solid signaling more than anything else you know we, we we are not seeing any kind of potential that the uh the troops are going to cross the border into ukraine or similar um and instead i think it is very much it's a case that um it, it's about a demonstrating sort of support for border countries but it's also i think an attempt to try and sort of show how important this whole conflict is to the united states to nato to the west in general at a time when there is considerable uncertainty as to whether or not Russia might be toying with the idea of some kind of escalation, we've got the current talks about a, you know, a Shoigu calling up various counterparts in the US, UK and elsewhere and saying that uh, the Ukrainians are thinking of uh, using a, a dirty bomb, uh, in other words, a, a conventional warhead, a conventional explosive, but one sort of enhanced with all kinds of radioactive nastiness. Um, you know, I think this is an attempt to try and actually sort of say, look, calm things down. We are not going to sort of just let ourselves be intimidated out of continuing our support for Ukraine. So that's that's my thinking. On the, the, the wider issue, um, and, I, and I must say, I, I would actually give one caution about the, the um, use of the word genocide. I mean, that, that has a very kind of technical meaning, and I'm... I'm I'm wary of of its too easy use. War crimes, I, I mean, I think there's there's no, in my opinion, real question about uh, genocide. I, I I would hesitate. It's a nasty, unpleasant war to be sure. 
it's one that is being fought against the civilian population as well as, as against the, the military population. But genocide has a high bar. Anyway, but more broadly, I mean, look, I think, there, yes, of course, there, there are a lot of Russians, and I think probably a majority, even within the elite, who are deeply uncomfortable with what's going on. Um, and it's not because they're worried because the International Criminal Court is investigating, but precisely because their impact on, on Russia, the fact that they, they are aware, to some degree at least, of what's going on in, in the actual war. Though, you know, we should remember that most people operate in an environment in which they're still cocooned by what is a pretty heavy censorship regime. But in terms of, of protests, I mean, look, we, you know, we saw, we have seen, you know, tens of thousands of people who came out to, to protest at the start of the war and at other times, and they have been fiercely and ruthlessly repressed. Um, I'm, I am seriously concerned about a sort of a, a prevailing view that we find in some quarters in the West, that more or less says, well, somehow the, the the Russians are all morally culpable because they're not coming out on the streets and protesting. That's something that is a lot easier to say when you are not in a situation where to do so means the not just likelihood, but the near certainty that you'll be arrested and that you may end up going to prison. You may end up getting uh, sort of severely beaten by the riot police. You may be dragged into, as we've heard, some horrific stories of a, you know, a, a back room in a police station and be raped. And what's more, the impact is not just for you, but for your family. Um, you may well find that, that your kid doesn't get to the university it was intended or that your spouse gets kicked out of their job or whatever as a result. You know, this, this, is, a, this is an authoritarian state that is really beginning to tip into the totalitarian. Um, and we have to acknowledge that. So I think the thing is, for most people, they're, they're, they're constantly sort of having to, to juggle this cost-benefit analysis. What are the risks and the potential opportunities in going up against the regime compared with the risks and potential opportunities in just keeping your head down? And I think for most, exactly, that they, they find it hard to believe that they can actually meaningfully change things. And therefore, why, why take the risk for yourself and, and for your family? There is no real organization of any kind of uh, opposition. And any attempts to do so will be cracked down. I mean, we saw how Navalny's movement was very quickly and very ruthlessly rolled up once they had decided to move against him. I mean, I, I, I still I don't think it means that all Russians are happy with what's going on. I just think that most Russians are frankly cowed. Um, and it really will, will, will take that moment. And, and, we, and we've seen it happen elsewhere. If you think of just how quickly the Warsaw Pact states in 89 collapsed, you know, these, these regimes can look very strong, tough and determined and until they suddenly don't. Um, but it will take that kind of, again, I think, uh, some kind of systemic shock to kind of force people to, to actually uh, quickly mobilise and it may well be that it'll come initially from, you know, economic crisis, or maybe there will be a generalized collapse on, on the front line. But I think this is it, just as the kind of the real challenge for the regime is its lack of res resilience. Part and parcel of that is the protest potential that builds up. Um, and then, you know, who knows what will be the catalyst I mean, again, I think in many ways for me, the interesting parallel is the Solidarity Trade Union in Poland that arose so quickly. You know, who beforehand would have thought that necessarily it would be the Gdansk shipyards and a particular electrician by the name of Lech Wałęsa who would emerge 
as the the, the symbols and the, the spearhead of opposition to you know what was after all again a tough and ruthless government um so i mean i i think it's there it's there in potentia and it may well emerge um but at the moment just the realities of a, a brutal police state are keeping it in potentia okay thanks very much mark um I'm going to try to um, ask two questions that have come in. Um, don't have a lot of time, but um, uh, the first question is from Peter. If the Russians were to destroy the Kakovka Dam to flood Kherson, what would have been the most likely reasons why the Russians took this action? Obviously, this is speculation, but you know this has been talked about a lot. Um, and there are a lot of fears of it. Um, so the question goes on, do you think this is something that is under serious consideration by Russian forces and the Kremlin? Okay. Um, I mean, the quick answer to that is, firstly, yes, I'm sure it's under serious consideration. It is uh, an obvious potential option for a regime which you know has already demonstrated itself willing to do all kinds of ruthless things in particular with attacking critical national infrastructure. Why would they do it? I mean, obviously, it, it, it would be in many ways a Pyrrhic victory because it also runs the risk of then denying Crimea um, water supplies. Um, but, I mean, I think it, it would be twofold. One is very specific, which is essentially to, to flood Kharkiv, um, Kharkiv, Kherson, um, almost in that sense of, well, you know, if, if we can't have it, then we're going to make damn sure that, that you can't have a proper city either. Um, again, uh, you know, frankly, self-destructive act of, of spite and peak more than anything else, but I you know, don't think we can rule that out. Um, and, but the second one is, is again, in, term, in terms of signaling, um, you know, the, the, the sense that we are willing to do gratuitously over-the-top things, even things that actually cost us because we're that crazy. And that has often been part of the, the shtick of the Putin regime. And again, it goes back to this whole business of the, of the will gap with, with the West. Um, the sense of, look, do you really want to keep fighting us when we're willing to do this kind of thing? So I think those are the reasons, both kind of, uh, you know, in terms of denying Ukrainians a city, um, but also in terms of trying to, to up the ante in their deterrent game. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I, I feel like I have to say, I think those those two uh, answers about the, the possible motives are, are quite accurate in my view. Um, I, I feel like Putin has done a great deal out of spite and peak. Uh, so uh, just to move on to uh, this, maybe the last question. Uh, this one is from George um, and from the Twitter Spaces link. Uh, the question is, what is the likelihood of Putin attending the G20? And that's the G20 summit um, later this year um, in Southeast Asia. I'm afraid I've forgotten where exactly. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's several factors here. There's obviously there's whether or not he's invited, which you know it looks likely that that he will be. 
And it's a useful and, and sobering reminder of the fact that we sometimes think that the world is arrayed against Russia. But in fact, it is really the West that is arrayed against Russia. There are many other countries that you know, may, may not be fans of what Putin is doing, but, but don't want to get sucked into what they think of as essentially a, a West versus Russia conflict rather than anything else. Um, it's also a question of whether or not Putin will be willing to travel. Um, you know, because this, this, you know, it has, has risks. And I don't necessarily mean risk in the sense that someone will try and shoot down his plane or similar, but risks in the sense of um, that he may well find himself being snubbed by, by many world leaders, obviously so. You know, we've already seen rather in, embarrassing pictures of people like Erdogan and others keeping him waiting on in front of the cameras and such like. Um, you know, whether or not ultimately he will think that the gains to be made um, are, are sufficient to out, outweigh the risks. I'm really not sure. So much, frankly, will, will depend on, on what the situation is. I think if, if the G20 summit was, was next week, my suspicion is that he would not be going. Um, so it really depends if, of whether or not he thinks he's, he's on a roll. And in that context, I mean, I'm minded of the, I think it was 2015 UN General Assembly, where for once, you know, Putin, who usually doesn't bother going to the UNGA, did because this came right after the Syrian deployment. And it was at a time when the Americans under President Obama were trying diplomatically to isolate him. And that's why, you know, it was one of the various reasons why the Russians went into Syria, to essentially inject themselves into an area that mattered to the United States. And want to say, Do you think you can isolate us? Think again. And then there was this sort of necessary meeting between Obama and Putin and an incredibly awkward photo opportunity which in some ways the Russians were, were delighted about the awkwardness because it emphasized his point that the American president didn't want to meet Putin, but Putin made him sit down and, and do it. So if Putin feels that there is gains to be you know, advantages, in other words, if he feels by that stage that, that he might be winning or that, let's say, the Chinese have, have promised him some particular big share of support, which I think is highly unlikely, then he might go. But as I say, otherwise, I have a suspicion he wouldn't. All right. Thanks very much for that as well, Mark. Um, I, I'll just add, uh, um, I've looked it up and the summit is in November in Bali. Um, so we'll see what happens and there'll be a lot happening, uh, in between, between then, between now and then, um, as you say, you know, I think Putin has, you know, often tries to use use these um, use summits and, and other high, high level meetings, you know, for the maximum possible kind of um, PR effect. Um, but but the question of whether he will feel he would be able to go if invited, um, you know, remains to be seen. All right, um, we are running short on time, and let's wrap it up here. Mark, um, thanks very much for joining. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, uh, and thanks everyone for the questions. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. Mark has a new book called Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine that comes out next month. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. 
As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for the next edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on November 4th. Thanks for listening.